Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler, performed by the author. Contagious is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash contagious. To all beef patties. Rome sat slunk down in the driver's seat of his Delta 88. The car was off, but even if it was on, it would have been cold as hell because the heater hadn't worked in months. His eyes were just high enough to look out the driver's side window, across Orlean Street, at the fat man with the red beard walking along the waist-high fence. Wasn't even a sidewalk there, just a snow-covered grass strip, the fence, then trees on the other side. White guy in the wrong neighborhood, at night, carrying a big white McDonald's bag in each hand. Are you kidding me? Rome said quietly. Doesn't this motherfucker know where he's at? In the passenger seat, Jamal shook his head. He must not. White guy walking here at night, alone, after hitting an ATM? It's like he wants to get robbed. I hope he's got some Big Macs, Rome said. I'm hungry. The man wore jeans and a long-sleeved plaid shirt. Not only did he seem oblivious to his surroundings, he also seemed oblivious to the cold. Every four steps or so, his breath shot out in a big white cloud that lit up from the few working streetlights. I'll tell you what, Rome said. Somebody has a serious fucking hankering for McDonald's. They'd been watching an ATM on Mack Avenue, looking for an easy mark. This guy had walked up on foot and taken out money. Looked like a lot of money. Rome and Jamal then watched him go into McDonald's. Five minutes later, he'd walked off with the two bags. The man had turned south on Orleans and had been walking for 15 minutes straight. Rome even drove a block past Orleans to St. Aubin, then several blocks south to get ahead of the man, then cut back on Lafayette and finally up the other side of Orleans. Here the street was barren, a parking lot on one side, the long stretch of trees on the other. He'd parked and they'd waited, seeing that the man was stupid enough to keep walking down such a deserted street. He was. It just didn't get any easier than this. And that made Rome nervous. Am I missing something? He asked after the man had gone a half block past the Delta 88. For real, this guy is alone? He just going straight, Jamal said. Not even enough sense to walk on a main road. Dude must be in a hurry. No one here, Rome said. Jamal nodded. No one. You said you wanted a sure thing, man. It don't get more sure than this. We gonna do this? We gotta move. Let's go get paid. Jamal and Rome got out of the car and left the door slightly open. That wouldn't give them away because the dome light didn't work either. They pulled their guns. Rome, a simple thirty-eight revolver. Jamal, his fancier Glock. They ran across the empty street and came up on the man from behind. He heard them because he turned. And when he did, he found two guns pointed at his face. Give me your wallet, Rome said. He held the thirty-eight in his right hand. His left hand he held out, palm up. The man just stared at him. Jamal made a show of pulling back the Glock slide, then pointed it at the man's face again. You give my man that wallet or it's your ass. And put them bags down. We're taking those too. The man turned to stare at Jamal. White as a sheet, big red beard. He couldn't possibly look more out of place. Had to be a tourist or something like that. Or maybe a retard, because he didn't look scared. Not even a little bit.
No, the man said. Fury crossed over Jamal's face. Rome got nervous. Jamal didn't like it when people told him no, especially white people. Rome chanced a quick look up and down the street. No one there, but this was already taking too long. I'm only going to tell you one more time, Jamal said. Put down those bags and give my boy your wallet. If there's enough money in it, I won't kill you. No, the man said. I can't. I still have to go get ice cream bars. Chelsea will be mad if I don't come back with ice cream bars. Jamal took two steps forward and put the barrel of the gun on the man's forehead. I don't give a fuck about your ice cream bars, Jamal said. Put down the motherfucking bags. The man knelt a little and set the bags on the snow-covered grass, then stood. He still didn't look scared. Rome didn't like this shit. Not at all. Usually, people crap their drawers when you pull the gun on them. This guy looked like he'd had a gun to his face so many times it bored him. Fuck the money. Rome wanted out of there. The man reached back with his right hand. That's it, Jamal said. Real slow. Give me that wallet. The man's expression didn't change. He reached up with his left hand, grabbed Jamal's gun, and lifted it until the barrel pointed into the air. It wasn't a fast move, but it wasn't slow either. Just smooth. No hesitation. Jamal seemed to freeze for a second, almost in disbelief that someone could be so stupid as to fuck with him. And then he tried to pull the gun free. It was only then that Rome saw the man's other hand coming out from behind his back, coming out with that same speed, that same confident smoothness, and holding a gun. The man put the barrel against Jamal's stomach and pulled the trigger. The sound was like a cap gun. It didn't sound real. Jamal's face twitched, more in surprise than pain. Smooth as before, the man raised his gun up under Jamal's chin and pulled the trigger twice. Then the man's throat started spraying blood. At first, Rome thought Jamal's blood was spraying on the man, but Jamal wasn't bleeding that much. He just wobbled for a second, then fell. The fat man dropped the gun and put both hands to his throat. His expression didn't change. The guy still looked bored, even as blood seeped between his fingers. The man turned to face Rome. Rome had fired his 38. That's what had happened. Smoke curled from the stubby barrel. He hadn't even known he'd fired, but he must have. He'd shot the man right in the throat. The man blinked a few times, then knelt, one knee on the ground. He reached back with his hands and eased into a sitting position. Blood continued to pour out of his throat, some of it splattering on the white McDonald's bags. The blood stained his collar and his shirt, dripping from his red beard. I wish, the man said quietly, I wish you could know the love. Then he lay down on his side and stopped moving. The blood slowed to a soft pulsing. Rome saw the man's wallet in his back pocket. He looked at it for a second. Then his common sense returned in a flash of panic. He just killed that man. Armed robbery. That made it murder one. He looked at Jamal. Jamal was dead. Fuck. Jamal? How could Jamal be dead? There were no sirens. There wouldn't be. No one called the cops around here for a few gunshots. Rome's heart hammered away. His breath came fast and deep. This was so fucked up. He reached down and grabbed the man's wallet. It was thick with cash. Rome put the wallet in his pocket. He looked up and down the street. 
Cops wouldn't come, not unless someone drove along the street and saw two bodies on the ground. Cops would be out fast then, real fast. Rome looked at the waist-high fence. It was torn open just a few feet away. Run or cover it up. He put the thirty-eight in his pants, grabbed the fat man's arm, and dragged him to the fence. Dude must have weighed 250. Rome pulled the cut fence aside and ducked under the cross post, dragging the man's body through. He ducked back out under the fence, then saw the trail of blood on the snow. Fuck. Someone would see that as soon as the sun came up. Still, that gave him plenty of time. But there was one body left. Rome looked at his dead friend. He'd known Jamal since they were both ten years old. Rome had seen people die before, but not his friend. He felt a tear slide down his left cheek. Sorry, man, Rome said as he grabbed Jamal's wrist and started to drag. I promise I'll look out for your moms. I hate to leave you here, but I gotta get out. I'd expect you to do the same thing for me, man. You know this. Jamal didn't say anything. He just stared up at the sky as he slid along. Rome dragged Jamal's body under the fence. He didn't put Jamal right next to the fat man, but rather about five feet away. He could do at least that much for his friend. Rome slipped under the fence one last time, grabbed both McDonald's bags, and hurled them over. Finally, he grabbed the guns and ran back to the car. He could ditch them in the river. Less than five minutes after they'd first approached the man, Rome drove his car down the empty street. Like Legos. Chelsea made Mommy and Mr. Burkle leave the Winnebago. She sat very still, very quiet, and focused all her attention on Mr. Jenkins. She could sense his location. She could send Mommy to him, but it was too late. Chelsea felt his life slip away. Death. She'd felt the deaths of Daddy, Mr. Beckett, and Ryan Rosnowski, but this was different. They were vessels, their only purpose to carry the dollies. Mr. Jenkins was like her. He was converted. They were connected. She took a deep breath and tried to deal with the amount of information flowing through her mind. It wasn't easy. The infection had spread to many of General Ogden's men. She constantly drew knowledge from them, searching their brains for new information. Now she knew words that most seven-year-olds would probably never have heard and definitely not understood. Words like collective organism. Mr. Jenkins had been part of that collective. Chauncey, what will happen to Mr. Jenkins now? He will decompose quickly so that no one can study him and use him against us. But what will happen to his, his interface, to all the little parts of you inside of him? They are designed to destroy themselves as his body shuts down. But we can use them. No, Chelsea. They must decompose. Do not go near him. Stay hidden. Chelsea thought. She reached out with her mind, connected with the little things inside Mr. Jenkins' body. Could she? Yes. Yes, she could. Chauncey, I can change them. I can put them in different orders, like Legos. Chelsea, I command you to stop this. Chelsea ignored Chauncey. She loved God, but maybe God up in heaven didn't know how things worked down here on earth. She sent a strong signal to the bits and pieces inside Mr. Jenkins, a signal in the form of two images. 
One image of Mr. Jenkins, fat cheeks smiling, as he looked when he was alive. He was to stay that way. They were not to make him decompose. The other image was of her favorite flower. Day 8 Ice Cream with a God At 0315, General Charlie Ogden's Humvee rolled up to a battered plywood wall in a formerly abandoned building on Atwater Street in Detroit, Michigan. The plywood wall moved aside, the Hummer rolled in, and the plywood wall was put back in place. The other vehicles would arrive soon. Ogden had ordered them to split up, come at the building from different routes, arrive at different times. A convoy would have drawn too much attention, but one green Humvee here, another there. At this hour, no one would give a shit. As long as his men were undercover by 0500, they'd be fine. The Hummer rolled deeper into the large, decrepit old warehouse, solid tires crunching on debris of wood, glass, trash, and broken masonry. Two vehicles over by the far wall, a white and brown Winnebago, and a filthy Harley Night Rod Special. Standing in front of the Winnebago, a little blonde-haired angel. The motions of dozens of knee-high hatchlings scurrying about on black tentacle legs. And the most important thing of all, eight curving columns in two parallel lines, four on the right, four on the left. The parallel opposites leaned toward each other. When they were finished, they would form four beautiful arches. Fat hatchlings sat on top of the columns. Each hatchling grabbed the top of a column with its tentacle legs, then squeezed out a foamy brown material that hardened almost instantly. Each squeeze seemed to grow the column by six inches, maybe as much as a foot. If it hadn't been blasphemous to think of such a thing, Ogden would have said it looked like the hatchlings were building the arches with their own shit. When the hatchlings finished excreting, they looked thinner, triangular sides sunken in. The newly skinny hatchlings scurried down, instantly replaced by other fat ones. The skinny ones ran to piles of wood or to trash or to half-eaten, bloody corpses. They lowered themselves onto these things. Sharp, cutting parts slid out of their triangular bases, and they started eating, pulling material up inside themselves with frightening speed. The gate. Never had the world seen something as perfect, as beautiful. The sound of small feet crunching on broken glass drew Ogden's attention away from the hatchling flurry. It was the little angel, her blonde curls bouncing with each step. She held an ice cream bar in each hand. Hello, General Ogden, the girl said. I'm Chelsea. He knew this, because hers was the voice he'd heard in his head when he converted, when he'd been planning, driving. Just looking at her filled his heart with love. We've been waiting for you. She spoke right into his mind, spoke with that voice of love and wisdom. Hello, Chelsea. I like your motorcycle. Then it's yours. Mr. Corvaz doesn't need it anymore. She was love incarnate. She was everything. We've been waiting for our protectors, General. Are you ready to protect us? She handed him an ice cream bar. Yes, Chelsea, Ogden said. I'm ready.
In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com r-e-a-l-m now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash realm. Cops, starring Sanchez and Ritter. Officer Carmen Sanchez had a bad feeling about this one. A report of bloody snow and two bodies. He felt grateful for the sub-zero temperature. Morbid? Sure. But dealing with a frozen body was preferable to finding one that had cooked in Detroit's summer humidity for a few days. Sometimes these calls were crap, but after 10 years on the force, you got a hunch for which ones were the real deal. Sanchez had that hunch now. The cruiser's bubble lights flashed as his partner, Marcellus Ritter, pulled off to the side of Orlean Street. Headlights illuminated chewed-up snow. Snow streaked with frozen red. Streaks that led toward a fence and the trees beyond. And just past the torn fence, two bodies. One black, one white. Neither of them moving. Ritter put the cruiser in park and grabbed the radio handset. This is Adam 12, responding to reports of bodies on Orlean Street, he said. We have two men down. Send ambulance and back up immediately. We're examining the scene. A 10-year-old boy had seen the bloody snow, found the bodies, then walked to a gas station and called the police. 
What a 10-year-old boy was doing up at 4 in the morning, Sanchez didn't want to know. Strict parenting didn't always happen in these parts. Ritter put the handset back in its cradle. They both got out of the car, guns drawn, and pointed at the ground. Ritter knelt behind the cruiser's open driver's side door, while Sanchez did the same with the passenger door. Police! Do not move! Sanchez screamed in his loudest cop voice. Stay where you are! If you can hear me, kick your right foot! Their caution probably seems silly to most people, because both men looked very, very dead. But this much blood meant weapons, probably guns, and Detroit police do not fuck around with something like that. Either one of the men might rise up at any second and start shooting. I said move your right foot, Sanchez screamed. That's the way it usually went. Ritter did the driving, Sanchez did the yelling. To each his own special skills. We gotta check them out, Sanchez said. Ready? Ready, Ritter said. I'll take the white guy in the left. Go! Sanchez scooted around his door and moved toward the prone white man. He kept his gun pointed at the ground, but angled forward, so he would only have to raise it up a couple of inches should the man pop up with a weapon. The Caucasian corpse was overweight, with a frost-lined red beard and brown eyes that stared blankly into nothing. The eyes had frozen open. Small, bloody hole dotted the right side of his throat. His shirt, especially the collar, looked stiff with frozen blood. Still-wrapped Big Macs littered the area. Ritter knelt next to the black guy. This guy's dead, Ritter said. No pulse, cold to the touch. Sanchez reached down to feel for a pulse, fingers probing under the beard, feeling the fat man's neck. The skin was cold and firm, but not stiff. The man hadn't frozen solid yet. Sanchez felt the jawline, reached under it, and pressed. Then a sound, like a soft cough. The sensation that his fingers had popped something, a small bubble. A thin cloud of gray lifted up and away from the man's beard. Only then did Sanchez see it. Little blisters on the corpse's neck, hands, even some on the forehead. He'd popped one, and this gray powder shot out and drifted through the air like fine pollen. Aw, fuck, he said. What the fuck is this? He backed away from the corpse, left arm bent, left hand held away from his body. He flung his hand, snapping his fingers outward. The powdery substance flew from his skin and floated in the air. Ritter looked at him. What the fuck happened, Chez? This guy has blisters, Sanchez said. I think I touched one. It popped like a puffball or something. Fucking gross. He holstered his pistol. Get the first aid kit. Oh man, this is so fucking nasty. Fucking asshole probably has AIDS or something. It's a fucking AIDS blister. I should have been wearing gloves. Ritter ran to the cruiser and opened the trunk. He pulled out the first aid kit. Sanchez stopped and looked at the hand for a second, wondering if he actually felt what he thought he was feeling. He was. It wasn't his imagination. His hand felt hot. Real hot. AIDS doesn't have blisters, Ritter said, as he took a clear plastic alcohol bottle out of the kit. Yeah? Then why does this fucking burn? Hurry up! Ritter doused the hand with alcohol, then handed Sanchez some gauze. Wipe it off, Ritter said. Oh, you fucking think? Sanchez wiped at the hand. Ritter opened a belt pocket and pulled out surgical gloves. Sanchez looked at the gloves in Ritter's hand as he continued to wipe his skin. That's not going to fucking help me now, you asshole. Ritter took a step back. Well, I don't want AIDS. 
You said AIDS doesn't have blisters. I don't fucking know, okay? The burning sensation grew. Sanchez had vacationed in Jamaica once with a second wife, and while swimming, had put his left hand through a jellyfish. That's what this felt like, a persistent stinging, burning pain that steadily increased. Oh, man, Sanchez said. That was so goddamn sick. Shit, this burns. Ritter stared at the hand. Uh, Chess, he said. Remember this morning's briefing about that shit in Gaylord? Sanchez stopped wiping. His eyes widened in fear. Flesh-eating shit? You think I got that flesh-eating shit? I don't know, man, Ritter said. Just relax. You fucking relax. Look, Ritter said. We've got that test kit, that swab thing. Go use it on that guy. Me? I think I'm fucked up enough here. Well, if he's got it, then you already got it, Ritter said. Why the fuck should I get it? Flesh-eating disease. Was that supposed to burn? If not, what did burn? This came out of a dead man's skin, for God's sake. Dude, this hurts, Sanchez said. You've got gloves on. Just check him. No fucking way. Let the paramedics do it. They're trained for that stuff. Sanchez could already hear the sirens. The ambulance would be here within minutes, but he couldn't wait. He had to know now. Come on, man, he said. Just do the test. He took a step toward Ritter. In the blink of an eye, Ritter was backpedaling, drawing his weapon and pointing it at Sanchez. You just stay the fuck away from me, Ritter said. Stay right there. Sanchez did just that. His own partner, drawing down on him. This was messed up. This was how people got shot. Okay, he said. I'm not moving. Just relax, Ritter. Stop pointing that gun at me. Ritter didn't stop. Not until the ambulance arrived and the paramedics took over. Putting on her walking shoes. Margaret and Dew sat in the computer room, watching the flat panel screens. Note to self, Dew thought. Never let the sentence, how can it get any worse, enter your mind again. Murray had just sent the live feed from Detroit's Channel 7 News Eye in the Sky. The screen showed a road that ran parallel to a strip of snow-covered trees. Looked like an abandoned railroad track that had long since grown in. Near an area where the old track ran under an overpass, Dew saw a pair of unmarked blue semi-trailers. Another Margo-mobile. Parked in the open. In a major city. Shit on a saltine wouldn't have tasted this bad. The caption at the bottom of the screen said, Possible case of flesh-eating disease in Detroit. Dew put Murray on speakerphone. Okay, Murray, Dew said. We've got the picture. What's going on? Be quiet and listen up, Murray said. I've got something else going on over here, something big, so I don't have much time. We have a positive cellulose test in Detroit, but it's not, I repeat, not a triangle infection. This might be similar to the Donald and Betty Jewell case. No ID on the man, fingerprints came up negative. Right now, he's a John Doe. As you can see, the story is already leaked, so we're in damage control mode. I'm sending a chopper for Margaret and her team. But I can't leave now, Margaret said. We killed that woman to get hatchlings, and now we've got them. I don't have time for your opinion, Murray said. Just listen. The man didn't die from the disease. He was shot in the throat sometime last night. He has not, I repeat, not decomposed. The cop who found the body was checking for a pulse when some kind of blister popped. 
Paramedics didn't go near the body, but they tested the cop a few hours later, and he was positive. It's contagious, Margaret said quietly. It finally happened. That's why I need you here ASAP, Murray said. The math is simple. We have triangle host killing people in Gaylord, so Ogden stays. Dossie is the only one who can talk to the captive hatchlings, and since I'm not about to move those things across the state or let Dossie out of Dew's sight, they both stay. This Detroit case doesn't have a triangle infection that we know of. No triangles means no gate, so we need to evaluate before we take any drastic action. I agree, Dew said. I didn't ask for your opinion either, Murray said. Margaret, it will attract too much attention to drop you right on the site, so we're landing you at Henry Ford Hospital a few miles away. You'll drive in. The Margot Mobile crew already has the John Doe and the cop loaded in. They will move the rig someplace secure. You can't move them, she said. At least not far. We need to check the area, see if the contagion vector is still there. Margaret, Murray said. You're looking at a feed from a news helicopter. We have to get the trailers out of sight. Then move them someplace close, Margaret said. If there's one case, there could be others in the same area. Fine, Murray said. I'll get someone on it. Do get Dossie to talk to those hatchlings again. I don't care what it takes. Cut off his finger if you have to. I need to address something else, so neither of you call me unless you have actionable information. Murray hung up. Wow, Margaret said. I've never heard him like that before. I have, Dew said. It means he's been up all night working on something big. What you just heard was the normally calm, cool, and collected Murray Longworth stressed out to the max. The computer room door opened, and Otto rushed inside. Margaret, there's a chopper coming in. Pilot radio down. Said he's here to take us to Detroit. He's landing now. Get Kitchen Marcus, she said. Let's go. Otto vanished. Margaret turned to Dew. Her eyes burned with anger, intensity. If this thing really is contagious, she said, we're in a whole different world of shit. The country needs to know. The world needs to know. Christ on a crutch. As if Dew didn't have enough problems. The new and improved Margaret Montoya wanted to go public. Trouble was, if it actually was contagious, she was 100% right. Murray's skullduggery had its place. But the time for that was almost up. Examine it first, Dew said. Before you do something silly, can you give it 24 hours? Why the fuck should I? Just do your job, Dew said. Evaluate, like Murray says. This time tomorrow, you still think going public is the right thing to do, I'll do it with you. She stared at him, her expression a mixture of hatred and disbelief. Why would you throw away your career like that? Because Murray has more people like me, Dew said. And if you try to go public against Murray's will, one of them might just pay you a visit. Expendable. Chelsea's knowledge grew and grew. She now understood why Chauncey had been sent. He wasn't a person. Organic material, like people or plants or puppies, couldn't survive the trip, not the way Chauncey had traveled. Organic material could survive a trip through a gate, but there was a catch. The gate was biological, like a plant. That meant they couldn't send a gate the same way they'd sent Chauncey. Such a funny problem, 
and it grew more complicated from there. Each of the hatchlings had a, a template. What a neat word, although she still didn't understand what it meant exactly. Some kind of a template to make material for the gate. The templates had been shipped with Chauncey. They were a part of each triangle seed. Their number was finite, another neat word, which meant that the hatchlings could not replicate themselves like the crawlers could. And the little crawlers that spread through people's bodies, converting them? What wonderful creatures! But they weren't creatures at all, not like snails or bugs or kitties. They were just collections of pieces, like Legos. You could put the pieces together in different ways. You could make the pieces do different things. Way cooler toys than Legos, actually. She wandered through the minds of the people in her... her network. So many interesting things. Many naughty things, too. She would address that later. One mind stood out above the rest, a mind that combined logic and creativity. General Ogden's. She found herself spending more and more time in there as she waited for the gate to open. She learned much. General Ogden seemed obsessed with something called contingency plans. Most of her network consisted of soldiers. General Ogden thought that most of those soldiers, including himself, would die defending the gate. He thought of his soldiers as expendable. If they all died, though, or even if the numbers of converted dropped just a little, what would happen to Chelsea's mind, to her knowledge? She did not know. And therefore, she needed a contingency plan of her own. The soldiers were very, very important, with training and experience at shooting things. There were only two people left in her network who were not soldiers. Mommy and Mr. Burkle the postman. Mr. Burkle was a man. He was stronger than Mommy. That made Mommy the weakest person in the network. Which meant Mommy was the most expendable. Chelsea breathed slowly and reached out with her thoughts. It wouldn't be that hard, really, to modify Mommy's purpose. It had worked with Mr. Jenkins. Chelsea concentrated, connected with Mommy's crawlers, and began to move the pieces around. You have been listening to Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by Scott Sigler, performed by the author. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. 